So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's most robust, obtuse, and I've forgotten the word I was going to use, environmental radio show. And we're on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on your beloved community radio station. And we're also available wherever you might decide to listen to a podcast, a podcast. Pad cost. You host stutter hostetters and your varying vowel sounds. It's exciting. It's the English language, which is, I recently heard, was some sort of evil machine from an alien planet or something. I don't, I don't know. Or on the Harbinger Network now, beloved media network of glorious anti-Polyev propaganda. <laughs> I don't know if we should do that. Pierre Polyev, according to the independent recording artist Andrew Mbaruk, is a psychedelic guru. That is not useful. The Harbinger Media Network, a community of progressive, listener-supported podcasts transmitting from the world to come. And my name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter. And I am Lauren Elizabeth Cor Latour. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, just wanted to take a very brief second because, like Dave said, this week and last week, actually, we are now a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. So if you're a brand new listener, thanks so much for joining us. We've been broadcasting with CIUT. If you ever want to engage with us, send us some feedback, join the conversation. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, or you can send emails that Stefan does read and pass along to us when they are relevant. So if <laughs> you want to just like send send abuse our way. He's always there to to field that. But um, but yeah, <laughs> we're here every week. We come out on Fridays and we talk about environmental news. It's it's a lot of climate. We say environment and it's it's definitely skewed climatey in the yeah. last few years, but we talk about climate policy and politics and news. And we try to make things as global in scope as possible, though, because all three of us are based out of Ontario, on terrible if you know it by that name, um, we, we do tend to, to chat about Ontario happenings often. But anyway, yeah, that's us. Although Dave and Steph pronounce their last names differently, rest assured they are brothers. So it's okay if you get their voices confused. They are very similar. And I'm your uh, token cishet white lady. Yes. And you can bet every week Stefan is likely to have an interview. So we do, we do, we Stefan interviews an individual, very relevant and intelligent individual. Every single week. Sometimes They're for- almost always our saving grace because the rest of the show is just incoherent rambling. And then we have somebody really intelligent to come on in the second half to make things make sense. You haven't let the listeners discover that we're incoherent yet. But <laughs> that's, that's something people like to feel for themselves, you know, like poetry. And before that, we talk about environment news, climate news. Or sometimes one of these scumbags has something very loud to pronounce at the very beginning of the show, apropos of absolutely nothing. Like today. And so, Stefan, what, what do you have? Well, first, I should wish him in the interview today is with the executive director of the Harbinger Network, Andre Goulet. Right. Uh, and so that that's coming in the second half of the show. But the first half of the wait, show... Wait, wait, wait. Let, let me say it. Let me say it. Sure. Today, Stefan will be interviewing Andre Goulet, the... Wait, what's his position? Executive director. The, ex- <laughs> the executive director of the Harbinger Media Network about that community of progressive media creators yes, in Canada, about the shows that are on it and about the state of progressive media in Canada. Exactly. Nice. But before we get there, this scumbag has some thoughts. Let me, I, I, just, I take back the use of the word scumbag, actually. I okay. take it back. I appreciate it. Stefan, although it's, Lauren was correct, if there's one thing Stefan's great at taking, it is abuse. <laughs> and so if you'd like to email us, please do. <laughs> That's but Stefan wanted to talk about the recession. 
Yes, the you might have heard about the heard the rumblings of an upcoming recession. And this is a story about why it's happening, how the government's response to inflation is failing to account for the real culprits, and finally, a question about what we as citizens can do to break out of the cycle of decay that we find ourselves in. So really uplifting stuff just off the top. Over the past 10 months or so, inflation and the cost of living has really become an issue for a large swath of Canadians, and really for much of the world. The two most cited causes of this inflation uh, have been the spike in the cost of oil uh, and in Europe, natural gas, due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as the lingering supply chain issues from the pandemic. And central banks, and in particular the United States Federal Reserve, but the Bank of Canada as well, seem to have decided that we have only one tool for this issue. Raise interest rates on loans to remove money from the economy. These interest rate hikes are expected to be what will cause the recession, which is likely to begin in early 2023 here in Canada. And the goal of the hikes, which has been pretty blatantly stated by the U.S. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, is to increase unemployment to keep the cost of labor down in the hopes of preventing what is called a wage price spiral which is basically a scenario where wages are increased to match inflation, and inflation then increases because of the higher wages, and the whole thing continues to go up and up and up until the value of the dollar is drastically reduced. And so the thinking here is pretty simple. You know, short-term pain in terms of manufacturing a global recession for long-term gain of getting inflation under control. But here's the problem. The plan both misidentifies the cause of the price increases and puts the burden of paying for that problem on low-income workers rather than the billionaires who just made a mint during the pandemic. But let me explain my thinking. One, corporate profits are a significant, if not a majority, of the reason for price increases. You can see this uh, in graphs of Loblaw's stock evaluation uh, being mapped near perfectly onto inflation. Loblaw's corporate earnings are up by nearly 10% in 2022 compared to 2021. That was for Q2. And just this week, uh, U.S. Representative Katie Porter showed that United States, 54% of price increases were caused by an increase in corporate profits. 54% of the, mo- of the amount of money that you are spending now in grocery stores and for other things is due to corporate profits. And that's where they're going. Number two. All energy is not becoming more expensive. This is pointed out very usefully, actually, by Stephen Thomas of the David Suzuki Foundation, who we have an interview with in a couple weeks coming up talking about it. But it's not all energy. It is fossil fuels are getting more expensive, meaning that we could meet this moment with a drive to build more wind and solar and follow the pathway that was set out in the David Suzuki Foundation report that we covered earlier this year. And this plan, in doing so, would fight inflation by bringing down energy costs, as well as supporting our climate goals that we are still behind on. And for more immediate relief, we could look directly at the oil and gas industry, who are back to raking in record profits just a year after crying poor in receiving billions of dollars of Canadian taxpayer money. And maybe some of that could be used to help the workers impacted by this recession that we're causing, right? No. It doesn't sound like there's any appetite from the Liberal government to consider a windfall tax on these profits or any additional support really going to to workers or people that they might lose their jobs in, in the next year. And finally, maybe you're with me so far, but thinking, well, at least this manufactured recession should stop the wage price spiral, right? Well, as it stands now, there appears to be no indication that one is happening at all. In a graph posted by economist Paul Krugman from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, average wages in the United States have not tacked up with inflation whatsoever. In fact, the wage increases are actually slowing down over the past year and currently sit barely above where they were in 2019. And yet, with all of this information, we wake up today with, to a, with a new Globe and Mail article titled, Canada's inflation rate slows to 6.9%, but outsized interest rate hike still expected. And so here we are, 
we seemingly find ourselves in yet another problem, which our current systems are completely ineffective at dealing with. And so we're poised to enter 2023 with a bunch of workers pushed into unemployment and potentially into the hands of rising right-wing populism. And ultimately, I can't help but see the similarities uh, uh, with this outcome to the sense of powerlessness that permeates the municipal election here in Toronto or the hundreds of other ways that it feels like we're constantly being told that better isn't possible and that deterioration is all that we can expect. And so what I'll put to you both in a second after we hear from Dave is this question of how can we respond and how do we see these facts and actually begin to envision a better world. But Dave, you have a bit more on the economic piece of it. Well, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to mention a couple of things to bring some added context. Mark Weisbrot, an economist, made the point in The Guardian last year that the U.S. Federal Reserve has caused most of the recessions the country has faced since World War II by raising interest rates. Uh, raising interest rates slows the economy down because fewer people can afford loans to buy expensive things or start businesses. This was done in order to ensure that not everyone would be employed, because the belief is that if everyone is employed, workers will have leverage to, to demand more money, and if workers are being paid more, the price of everything will go up, and if the price of everything goes up, workers will demand to be paid more, and the price of everything will go up even more, and so on. Uh, but this kind of thinking has contributed to wages stagnating for 40 years. And as Weisbrot pointed out on Inside Sources, everyone knows, uh, from 1979 to 2017, the median wage has grown by just 11.6%. If we compare that to prior decades, for example, 1948 to 1979, that increase was 93.2%. And if this, is, this, of course, has happened uh, even though the value, of workers are, uh, the, the value that workers are producing has skyrocketed. Weisbrot also, made the, also praised the current chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, uh, as being more committed to full employment than any previous chairman. But I guess you're saying that Jerome Powell has actually stated explicitly that they're going to raise interest rates. To, is that right? Yes. I mean, the previous plan was towards full employment, but they're very much backing off of it now and trying to raise that employment. And this is, and this is, an, and this is just an illustration of sort of what, what appears to be, or at least arguably a conservative angle, still, still, still supporting Stefan's fundamental position. This is Dean Baker writing for the Center for Economic Research and Policy uh, in a blog post that was called, How Do We Get a Wage Price Spiral When Wage Growth is Slowing? from June. He writes, quote, If some sort of peace deal, or at least ceasefire, can be arranged in Ukraine, presumably most of the recent rise in energy and food prices will be reversed. If not, it would be good to have some tax and transfer system so that low- and middle-income people can be compensated for the hit to their living standards. In any case, the pattern of wage growth we are seeing is clearly not consistent with a wage-price spiral story. The Fed would be making a bad mistake if it raises rates as though it were responding to one. And so he only wants to raise taxes if there is no ceasefire in Ukraine. And so here's a man who like, isn't really for redistributing wealth in general. But he's still saying, in this case, it's absurd to not, to not do that. And finally, quoting Benji Akbulat from Concordia, and then commenting on the quote, Susan Paulson wrote for Economist Impact in September, this is about uh, degrowth, quote, while it is most straightforwardly understood as material downscaling, degrowth denotes a far more encompassing transformation, a break with the ideology of growth, the repoliticization of the economy, and a reorientation of economic relations along different principles. Foremost among those principles are democracy, diversity, participation, and abundance, in contrast to prevailing notions of hierarchy, competition, and scarcity that, uh, that underpin current systems. And so I just thought that was, it was interesting because it was, a, it was a way of phrasing degrowth that I hadn't considered before, which is the repoliticization of the economy. And the idea of repoliticizing the economy takes power away from experts with abstract models that are applying to people's actual lives, and, uh, and refocuses thinking about economics where it should be, which is, I think, in politics, and rather than academies. So a, a lot there. There's three or four different things here, right? There's one of the questions here is, as people who generally, I think, would agree that the cult of growth is questionable, a recession is literally just the reduction of growth, 
right? Like a recession is is just that it's something like two. It, 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 it the economy does not grow as much as you think it would for multiple quarters, and that's a recession. And and so the idea that a recession is inherently bad is itself connected to the cult of growth, where which is uh, which is something that we would question from the jump. And yet, very clearly, the manufacturing of this recession to push people out of work, especially at a time when we're seeing you know union growth in the in the states and, and other places be so much stronger, is also bad. And so there are a bunch of different sort of interplaying things here, but. I'd to get your general perspective on on any one of these things, Lauren. Well, I think I'm going to go back to that initial sort of question you posed, uh, which was, how do we respond? How do we take power back, protect the most vulnerable, and begin to actually build the world we know is possible? And I feel like that's very much like that's like the question you get on a panel discussion that you then kind of like abruptly pivot to something like weird and narrow about. And and I'm I'm going to do that because all I've been able to think about this week, well, and actually the reason it's all I've been able to think about is because it's all that's been on my Twitter feed. I love that like my Twitter feed is so like entrenched in like Canadian lefty politics, but it is just like, God, sometimes I just want like a dumb meme. But all I've been reading about this week is the cluster frick, the cluster frick (laughs) that is what's happening with um, the BC NDP premiership sort of like campaign um, or run. And everything that the that the BC NDPs are doing to, to Anjali Apadurai. Um, and it's just wild for folks who maybe haven't heard about it. We mentioned it briefly last week, but basically what you've got here is David Ebby, who is the kind of like the party um, like institution. He's He's been with the NDP, kind of represents the party line, is as progressive as the BC NDPs always are which isn't that progressive, um, kind of in the pocket of um, the logging industry um, and LNG um, versus Anjali Apadurai, who is being, who is like, she's rad. She's an upstart in the sense that like, she's, she's relatively um, like, she's new to this, to this race, but she has been entrenched in the movement for a very long time is no stranger to running, ran a very, very successful federal campaign last time there was a federal election, almost won her seat in Vancouver, um, is very well respected within the movement, is an incredible woman of color and like relatively young, not not so young that she doesn't have experience, but like early to mid thirties and is running a fantastic campaign. And the BC NDP establishment is galled because she was able to bring 10,000 people to the party, um, 10,000 new voters who were stoked to be there, stoked to be engaging in this race and, and to potentially elect Anjali. And once that happened, the party got its backup. David Abbey got his backup and now they're trying to delegitimize her campaign to the point where at, at the at the at the time of recording and we record this show on Wednesdays. So by the time this airs on Friday, we will likely have an answer and, and we'll know what's happened. But this evening is is a vote to see if the party is going to completely disqualify Anjali running in the race. And if that happens, then the premiership automatically goes to David Abbey, basically, because he's uncontested within his own party. And it's it's one of it's I, I bring it up because your question, Steph, which is like, how do we keep organizing? How do we keep the faith? How do we keep moving forward? Becomes really hard when you've got such good people and like so many good people in in a community or in, in a region like BC, which at least within the context of so-called Canada, we like to think of as like pretty like West Coast progressive, blah, blah, blah. When, when you've got such a, an amazing pool of kind of like radical progressive leftists pushing for this amazing candidate, and then you've got the party that is supposed to be the leftist party in Canada pushing back so hard against like actual progressive politics and actual progressive ideals. And it's in, it's a huge bummer. It's so infuriating. Um, and it makes me seriously question what the future of like progressive electoral politics is in, in a country when a party is so hellbent on turning their back on like actual progressive ideals. It's such a good example of also the way it feels so often where sort of the left-wing base and people sort of are pushing for more left-wing activism in in sort of these electoral politics 
get sort of sidelined in a very direct way and pushed aside, whereas the conservatives seem to go directly into it, right? Like the most conservative energy, energy, despite it coming from places that are often wildly conspiratorial, like the the recent article I saw was that Pierre Polyver should not should keep his distance away from Dan from from the new BC from the new Alberta Premier Danielle Smith right Smith yeah from Danielle Smith and I was like man the guy who thinks the World Economic Forum is somehow secretly running the world is needs to keep his distance from a different person who's an, another Premier like that to me is like we are so far down the conservative movement of going for wherever the most energy is regardless of what it might actually can be connected to a worldview and then you have the left-wing response being like no your idea that a better world is possible and that maybe we should actually treat climate change like an emergency is to discredit their even running is such a diametrically different response and you see it you see this happening in the states you see it happening so many different places whereas like like those in power and left-wing institutions seem to love the status quo even more than anyone else. And that's a problem because the status quo is very bad. I, I think that's literally it. It's this clinging to the status quo, viewing like, I don't know, like 60s era liberal democracy as the world that we want to live in. And they're hell-bent on bringing it back and making sure that we don't take a step farther to the left than that. It's it, like when you see somebody like Polyev and you see that kind of populism and you see that kind of right-wing extremism and you've kind of got two potential responses and they're really at a head right now. It's like the response that I think those of us on this show and many folks within the progressive movement take is like, we have to fight fire with fire. We need to show that the type of like wonderful, big, beautiful type of world that like truly centers care for people and planet is possible. And it's, it's audacious and it's ambitious, but it's 100% necessary if we're going to make it through the next few centuries versus the kind of like neoliberal centrist response that is no, if we cling to the center as hard as we can, then we will keep that necessary handful of conservatives who are afraid of Polyev from voting for him. Like that's their theory of change. Yeah. Is that if I stay as staunchly in the center as possible and offend as few people as possible, then I can be a safe home base. And it doesn't result in improvement for anybody. It doesn't result in change for anybody. All it results in is the continued concentration of power and wealth at the top. Well, and it creates people like John Tory, you know, who his entire thing is it's going to be not interesting. And and it allows for the level of decay, like the number of stories that come out in this election have been two, there have been two versions of stories in the Toronto municipal election, just very quickly. One is the city is falling apart and the other is this election is boring. And like, those are the two stories we're hearing. It's again, yeah, we're very boringly falling apart because we refuse to have a vision. And the biggest problem with this sort of clinging to centrism is that it leaves the sort of identifying of the problem to the uh, to the right wing you know like they are able to come out and say like oh i will protect you from the law blases of the world or the disney's of the world because conglomeration is bad now they're all of their ways they want to do it and the and their some of their reasoning is very flawed and, and problematic but if the left wing answer is aligning itself with sort of the global capitalism and these in the slow consolidation of power into fewer and fewer companies and the right wing response is i'll protect you with fascism the you are stuck in this world where the people who can see the problem which is these global monopolies are slowly consolidating more and more and more will see only one party responding to that in a only one party identifying the problem at its face and I will give some brief credit to the uh, federal NDP in that they've done a very good job last couple of weeks just never shutting up about the law blahs and it, how much money they're making. And that is the kind of messaging that can work, but it has, to, but we can't lose this version of the fight. Like if the left wing is too careful that it doesn't want to point the problem to where the problem is, which is the consolidation of power into fewer and fewer companies, then 
we then the people who see that problem in existing will go to the only other answer, which depressingly right now is, you know, thinly veiled or fascism light, and in some cases, overt fascism. And that's all bad. 100%. And it's and like, like, you've hit the nail on the head there. And that's one of the reasons why it continues to frustrate me why in um, sort of like, I, like well, well, I'll continue to call them progressive spaces, even though not everybody in them is all that progressive. But 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 progressive spaces and leftists being so like baffled and confused and unsure of why um, right wing populists continue to attract people and continue to do a way better job of appealing to um, working class voters and and just like people than we do. And and it's exactly because of what you said. It's because they are speaking a version of truth when they're calling out and when they're pointing towards these systems and these mechanisms that are in place that that so utterly are only in place to serve to serve the ruling class and don't help the average person and they're they're better at calling that out more honestly than we are like you said the solutions they present are completely like ass backwards and dangerous and it does amount to fascism so like in please do especially if you're a new listener i'm not a pierre polyev fan and i'm not and i'm not sort of like giving credence to those arguments but they are speaking in a in a way that on its surface feels more honest and feels more authentic than what currently um left-wing political establishments are doing and until we are willing to admit that to ourselves, we're going to continue to fail. Like I was in a conference this week um, about climate policy and it was very high level and it was a couple hundred people and a couple thousand people zooming in online as well um, who were all there. And it's like, it's one of those things where you're in a space and it's like, wow, there's so many intensely well-educated, totally brilliant, really well-resourced people in this room working on climate and who have been working on climate for decades now, for 30 years, for as long as I've been alive, if not longer. And, and it's like, you're sitting there so frustrated and it's like, why aren't we winning? Why aren't we winning? Why have we not made more headway? Why of all the G20 countries, Canada is the one, or maybe it's G7, one of the Gs, why of all of the Gs are we the only ones who haven't um, been able to reduce our emissions even a little bit, even a little bit. We haven't really been able to to earnestly reduce our emissions over the last 20 years. And, and it's because we are in a space that is completely lacking in creativity and completely unwilling to overturn the ruling class in favor of the rest of us. Like, in Canada, we are so married to the status quo. We are so terrified of deviating from it even a little bit that that we're willing to screw ourselves over because of it, because we just need to cling to this narrative that we're a safe, calm, easy place to live. And, and it's not, we're not for a lot of people, for the vast majority of Canadians, people are struggling, people are unhappy. And as long as our left-wing parties, whether it be the BC provincial party or the liberals under Trudeau aren't willing to earnestly acknowledge that and prevent and present like visionary solutions we're we're going to continue to lose not just on climate but the next election cycle you're gonna see polyev in power I am here with Andre Goulet, the executive director of the Harbinger Media Network, and also the host of the Harbinger Society Presents, which features guests from Canadian progressive media, journalism, and the Harbinger community. And he joins us from Montreal. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm really happy to get to talk with your audience about Harbinger. And I'm really happy that Green Majority Radio is now part of the Harbinger Media Network community. So for those who may not know of, of the Harbinger Media Network, can you tell us what it is and what you set out to do? So Harbinger Media is basically a, a loose community of most of your favorite left or progressive podcasts from across the country, coast to coast, in French and English. And we launched about two years ago. We're recording this in mid-October and our birthday is, is this week. We launched a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic just because there was this sort of 
growing space where people were using the medium of podcasting to put out progressive content. And it was all really good. Like Alberta Advantage had been doing deep dives into history, right? And we had Kino Lefter doing like the best socialist analysis of film in a really funny way. Progress Report out of Edmonton, Duncan Kinney's show and, and, and others around the country. So we were like, well, we should have like a space that we share, right? And then like promote each other, work with each other and, and basically just build a community. So that was the... That was the motivation, just like we all exist. We all basically share the same values. Why wouldn't we have this community? And, and so we, we launched the network. We launched the website, harbingermedianetwork.com, uh, as just sort of a space where people who are interested in progressive perspectives on politics, on society, on ecology, et cetera, can go and basically find pretty high quality shows with, with some really big names. Yeah. So it's been pretty amazing. And two years into this project, I couldn't be happier with just where things are at. It's funny because I had first thought of a podcast network, but you've just informed me that it's sort of expanding into video and other things. And so I'm curious why you maybe started with podcasting and, and then, yeah, what's the focus, why the focus on audio first? Sure. Well, I think we can connect audio and video because for me, the thing, the reason I have been podcasting for, for five, seven years is probably its immediacy, its efficacy, its simplicity, and its democratic aspect, right? Because anybody can podcast. And if you take your time to like write out some questions and, and find a good guest and then produce it to a level where like people will enjoy listening to it. It's really easy to just put it out there. And I think that's the case for a lot of the shows on the network. So like why podcasting specifically, why audio? I think it was just sort of at that moment, a couple of years ago, it was starting to kind of ascend. But as I've continued to work in the medium, it's just like, yeah, it's the democratic aspect. Anyone can do it. And as a lot of your listeners probably know, we don't have a great media ecosystem in Canada. It's extremely corporate. It's, it's very siloed. And we don't have space for people talking like with urgency about issues like climate, about issues that have to do with, with society and, and uh, economics. So using podcasting, it, it's a tool to disseminate these sorts of values and these sorts of ideas and basically do a kind of popular education. Because one thing I've noticed with Green Majority Radio, and this is the case for basically every show in Harbinger, we are often interviewing experts. We're interviewing people with a perspective, yeah, but also an area of expertise. And they are then sharing that with our listeners. Like, I'm not a brilliant genius. I don't go into these interviews being the smartest person on the call. I'm giving other smart people to explain things to me and then sharing that with the listener. For so long, there were so many funnels into the ability to actually get anything mass produced, right? Like you had to get on air or you had to have an access to a radio broadcast station and, or the ability to print hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper so people could go out and read them. You know, all of those versions of media, I think inherently can be brought together, which is not so much possible, or now we have this ability to do it so, so differently. And, and yeah, and I love that. Some some shows on the network, like Paris Marx's Tech Won't Save Us, Paris has created this show that has such a international scope and probably receives like eight to 10,000 downloads an episode. Now, if people don't know much about like what audiences are like for podcasts, that's big, right? And Paris has managed to create the space where it's one of the not one of the only, but definitely one of the very best shows talking about a progressive perspective on technology and debunking a lot of the hype behind big tech. You can't do that at CBC Podcasts. Like, there's just not space for it. Uh, other shows like Big Shiny Takes is, is a show that critiques the sort of really shallow, wretched pundit class of Canada, and they they read articles and basically make fun of it. But these are three young journalists, Jeremy Appel, Eric Wickham, and Marina Greco. And they love to just like take down absolutely objectionable people. I won't say any names like John Kay, but it's wonderful. So, so yeah, like you know, Paris's show or Big Shiny Takes or Darts and Letters, which is this brilliant, pretty academic show out of Toronto. They basically do very deep dives into sort of 
his history, society, and and bringing in experts from academia, but then talking about about issues like well like everything uh, but in a really smart way it's superbly produced it's extremely high quality and again this wouldn't exist at the public broadcaster it wouldn't exist obviously from like post media or something so yeah the the accessibility is is a key characteristic of why i think a community like harbinger is so important if you could talk a little bit more about how you sort of understand the the media landscape in in Canada and the troubles that may ail it and some of the things that you see Harbingers working towards and other sort of media startups trying to solve for. One one nice thing about doing the kind of work that we do with a lot of the shows at Harbinger is that the, the mission is really clear and the mission is to basically fight to create space for alternative perspectives, right? Whether that's climate urgency or economics or society. And in a media landscape like Canada's, I mean, yeah, we got the CBC and lots of respect for a lot of the work they do. And then we have what post media and then we have like CTV and global like there is there's no variety. And in French Canada, there's a Videotron. It's garbage. It's 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 bad. And having a space like Harbinger allows for like just the obviously different perspectives. But in, in the couple of years where we've kind of refined how we bring on new shows and how we do outreach and continue to build this community, like, I am so happy because we have The Breach, uh, The Breach Media's show called The Breach Show that's part of the community. We have The Hoser, that's uh, the independent media in the GTAs, their short circuit podcast as part of the community. The Maple in British Columbia, their North Untapped, hosted by Alex Kosh, covering not only BC issues, but Canadian politics and government. We have Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East out of Montreal. And uh, Press Progress just launched a new show with us, the great investigative reporting organization, Press Progress Sources, and that just launched last week. So like being able to have all these different independent progressive media spaces being under a big tent, being friends with each other, figuring out how to like collaborate, coordinate. It's exciting. And it creates an alternative space for news media in, in a wonderful way. Canada land is very exceptional. Jesse Brown built something really special with Canada land, but one thing he was not interested in doing was building a community and making space for like lots of voices it it was the jesse show until he recently retired from his position only what, like a few months after they unionized so that's interesting too not to gossip about jesse but like we need to create alternative spaces because we have such a lousy media landscape in this country and it's like it's nation building sorry that's corny but like it's a, it's an important thing so i couldn't be happier with just how that's evolved and also in partnering with some independent publishers like fernwood publishing has a new show with us called 30 wood uh, celebrating their 30th anniversary between the lines books out of toronto which is a independent publisher that is like very progressive I'm doing ad reads on my show just to sort of promote the new releases they have. And I, I love that Harbinger can be creating that kind of space. We're partnering with Briarpatch in 2023 out of Regina to celebrate their 50th anniversary and doing some shout outs for them and some advertising for them. So sharing all this space with all these different media organizations, like it's great that we can be friends. It's awesome. And that's one of the, I think, major factors that makes Harbinger a really special organization. Hey, I'd love to hear that Briarpatch is, is connected because they're truly some of the best journalism that I've seen happening. And it is interesting to sort of see this shift of Harbinger and how it connects to, you know, we've had a couple other different media organizations come through the show and we've chatted to the Green Line here in Toronto, which is trying to do a similar kind of community building. You know, we've talked to to folks from, from National Observer in the past and other things like that. And there does seem to be a, a newer shift towards creating alternatives really this like any alternatives you know let alone like try to create a community of alternatives but it does feel like in the last couple of years maybe last five years we've seen this beginning of a media moment where people are shifting their media habits and being able to support and actually like keep alive because that's the real key right it's one thing to launch a new organization it's another thing to have the organization last for five ten years it can build up an actual sustainable influence. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about sort of the progressive media coming into the mainstream. 
Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I totally neglected to mention that when we launched two years ago, our partner was Passage. You can find them at readpassage.com. They're a sister organization of Maple, which you can find at Read themaple.com. And they basically helped us getting things set up in terms of like the technical things and and also like being really supportive and really encouraging. So that sort of collaboration was really important for helping us get off the ground. And so how does progressive media support movements for change? Well, I think by creating capacity to grow together, because we kind of need each other. And by creating that sort of support, then, you know, by making ourselves stronger, then we can be a stronger space to support climate action, to support fighting for better housing policy or, or economic things, social things. So yeah, progressive media plays a key part in that. But I think that really, like partnering and being strong is important. In Toronto this week, there is the launch of a new alt weekly, although it might just be coming out every two weeks or every month. I don't know. It's called The Grind. And this is this has its origins in a collaboration between The Hoser, I think The Green Line, and some other independent media players who collaborated and released like a newspaper to like go pick it up at the TTC. It's a, it's amazing. They're going to be covering the municipal election and giving perspectives that like you can't find in Toronto because now now magazine's dead and it's just the Toronto Star and the Toronto Sun and the Toronto Sun is garbage paper. So where else are people supposed to like talk about, you know, municipal politics which yeah, it's super boring, but also John Tory is not great and like these conversations have to be happening. I think only independent media can make it happen. I don't think they're exploring these things in the same way on global or on CTV. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably safe to safe to guess. But what I what I love, not to put words in your mouth, but what I love about some of the work that this is and what I think what progressive media can do effectively is in some ways world building, right? Like it's creating a sort of structure for people to understand the world and therefore act on according to how this world exists rather than sort of how the corporate media might you want you to have, believe the world exists. You know, I think a lot of uh, some of the, the more business-minded corporate media wants you to believe that a lot of things are just going to happen because it's expected. Last week on our show, we talked a little bit about how much we love this tagline, which is a community of progressive listener-supported podcasts transmitting from the world to come. Because that last sentence about this is sort of coming from the future we could have creates this aspirational feel and this ability of believing that better is possible. And so can you talk a little bit about that in in the need to envision a better future? Okay, I think that's really important because change doesn't happen quickly and it, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of patience. And so mutual aid, yeah, that's important, right? And like building hope, building the capacity to like have some kind of optimism in the face of like, incredible odds is is really important so yeah this like the tagline i guess kind of evokes being able to imagine that a better world is possible which honestly to me still isn't a cliche like that's still something that just makes me feel better about how we can engage with like some of the more nightmare aspects of our world and what you were mentioning before talking about how uh the corporate media it's it's sometimes kind of hard for people to feel very connected to it. I mean, there's a lot of personalities in corporate media, lots of pundits and and people on television. But I think that's actually something that's the case with Harbinger as well. Some shows are very collective, like the Alberta Advantage is 10 or 15 people in Calgary who hesitate to attach their names to it and just like work together very collaboratively. But then there's other shows that are very much driven by people who have created spaces for themselves online and elsewhere and who have something to say. Hilary Agro is a academic in Toronto who studies sort of drug policy and stuff like that. And her show Bread and Poppies is on the network. And so she has a very specific kind of perspective. We have Sarah Burrell, formerly of Briarpatch in Regina, her Unmaking Saskatchewan sort of talks about how do we dismantle this colonial space to make a better province. And, and it's it's very much a show driven by how smart and fun and funny Sarah is. And then there's like Christo Avalis's Left Turn Canada that he co-hosts with Andy Borkowski. Christo has a very dynamic personality. And so, yeah, big names like this, Rob Rousseau, Nashua Khan, Habib Please, 
so I, I love that there can be these sorts of personalities with strong things to say who are engaging audiences so that people can find out that like radical thinking about climate, about justice and stuff like that, it's cool. I don't have to get Pierre Polyevre pilled and become a reactionary freak. No offense to anyone who's a reactionary freak listening to this, but like it's important to basically popularize the sorts of values that we really believe in and to make them cool, right? And to make them smart and to make them fun and make them engaging. So I think that's a, a really important part of how we can project towards a more positive future and replace what is so boring and bland and lame about conventional media. There's a, there's a sort of joke that exists about how you become radicalized and you like learn about one thing and you sort of fall down these rabbit holes. But I do think that anytime someone presents to you the an alternative version of a reality that exists, that opens up your mind to potentially understanding all the other ways that maybe some other something something else you you've learned from one particular source is not the actual only truth that's available to you. You know, maybe there's other things. And every time I think someone can present a world to you that may not be as as available to you as it would normally be in traditional media or anything like that is an opportunity for someone to get more involved to take more decisive action or honestly take action that might have a a bigger impact you know like it's one thing to listen to all the information you could get about corporate meat from corporate media and be like oh okay well i care about climate change so i'm going to eat meat only once a week and like that's great no one is in, in I, don't, I don't want to come back and question individual action but like that's not going to get us there. But if that's the only thing people are offering for you, then that's the only thing you can have. It will versus like someone else might come out and be like, give you a totally different perspective. Let me tie, tie this back into something else too, which is that, okay, so what one show on the network that I really love is Desmond Cole and Shama Rangwala have a show called Replay, where they basically talk about pop culture, but because they're both brilliant, they are exploring like the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror on one episode or like Citizen Kane on another episode, but they're making you think about it in a completely different way um, and, and doing the sort of stuff that like, yeah, you just, you wouldn't have the capacity to do in a lot of mainstream media. So yeah, I think it's really important and it's really exciting. Our birthday I mentioned is, is happening this week and it's our second birthday. So we've been around for like what, 740 days or something. And one thing that, what have we learned? I mean, I think the, I think the biggest, can I say this? So maybe the biggest challenge and biggest like success or whatever challenge for sure. It's financial. There is like, it's really hard for people to just click and give a dollar a month, right? Like people just don't think about why it's important or the urgency of it. And so getting organic support is a challenge. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we do do fundraising occasionally. And on October 30th, we will be doing a 12-hour uh, telethon on Twitch. So if people follow us at Harbinger Media, or sorry, at Harbinger Tweets, they can definitely find out more about that. So we're going to be doing a telethon with like most of the big names from the Harbinger community and hopefully Green Majority Radio will be joining us as well. But that's a great way to get to come see some of the people in the community. And if you like what you see, supporting us for just like, you know, five bucks a month, we basically do try to give back when people support us. And so if you support at five bucks a month, we send some stickers and some postcards and a pin and stuff like that. I'm pretty excited though. We have a new initiative beginning with this telethon where people who support us at $10 or more a month will receive a new release from Between the Lines Books. They are partnering with us to just basically help us give away some stuff and, and try to get some more supporters. So yeah, biggest challenge is definitely financing. Every show kind of runs their own finances, but the network itself you know, we got to pay for the hosting space and stuff like that. And there's a small, small, small honorarium that goes to me to like keep things kind of running, but having some money would be really super helpful. So that's definitely the biggest challenge. What we're looking forward to in the coming years, I think is just, it's been so successful, like in terms of creating the space where we can have, like I said, Press Progress, The Maple, The Hoser, Rob Rousseau, Twitter famous dude, Big Shiny Takes. There's just so many shows that are kind of friends, right? And so I love creating a space where basically people can 
create this capacity to collaborate. And importantly, the scope geographically, I think is really exciting just because I love that we can have shows from BC all the way to Newfoundland. And we partner with Quebec's best independent, progressive independent journalism organization. It's a, a cooperative solidarity journalism project called Pivot. And when they have new shows, they also join the Harbinger network. So it's wonderful to have shows in two languages as well. Like it's pretty cool. We're friends with CUTV. We're friends with The Breach. It's great to just have these sorts of relationships. So I'm just excited to see how that continues to evolve because it has been such a success and so much fun over the last couple of years. And so if folks have heard this and, and want to learn more and get involved and, and check you out, how can they do that? There's no doubt that after this conversation, people will be like fascinated and excited to find out more, which they can do at harbingermedianetwork.com. At the website, we basically have a listing of 50 shows from across the country. On the front page, we have the shows that are currently putting out new episodes every week, every two weeks, every month, whatever. And then if you click through to the legacy shows, you can find another 25-ish shows that are no longer publishing, but that we just like, you know, are still super happy. They're part of the community. And that includes stuff like Well Reds from Vancouver comedian Charlie Demers, which was a leftist book review show. He He's so brilliant. He's so funny. And there's that. There's Out of Left Field in Victoria. There's Radio Free Winnipeg. News You Can Use with James Wilt, Drew Brown from Newfoundland. And lots of other shows too. So I definitely urge listeners to check out harbingermedianetwork.com. Follow us on Twitter at Harbinger Tweets and follow us on Instagram at Media Harbinger. Find us in all those spaces. And if I'm being honest, you won't regret it. Also, I should also boost my show Harbinger Society Presents, which I'm extremely proud of. It's a show where I like interviewed author Leslie Kern about her new Verso book, Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies, on the most recent episode. I spoke with Nora Loretto on the episode before that, talking about Quebec's provincial election. I talked about Pierre Polyevre and why his politics of resentment are terrible with Rick Saluton, the Toronto Star and former Globe and Mail columnist. And it was a wonderful conversation. So yeah, I, I get to do this show where I kind of bring together different people and, and talk about topics that I find interesting so people can find Harbinger Society Presents wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been Andre Goulet, the executive director of the Harbinger Media Network. And as you just mentioned, also the host of the Harbinger Society Presents. Thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Stefan, it's so awesome having Green Majority Radio join this community. Luke LeBron from Press Progress once called it a fraternity. I'm not sure that's fair or appropriate, but actually it probably is. So welcome. It's awesome. And I think Green Majority is such a dope show. So yeah, welcome. And thank you. <laughs>